0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. We come to the end of another consequential and uh, distressing, frankly, week as the coronavirus continues to take its toll on Georgia. Um, it, it, with that in mind, let me give you the latest figures that have been reported by the Georgia Department of Public Health. Uh, at seven, as of seven o'clock last night, they report that we now have fifty four hundred forty-four cases uh, in the state. That's up six hundred and ninety-six in twenty-four hours. 176 people have died. That's up 22, in 24 hours. And we now have um, an additional county, at least 143 of our 159 counties in Georgia now uh, have uh, uh, individuals tested positive for COVID-19. And I always wanna remind you that we know those figures lag. They are not telling us what's happening today on the ground. They're certainly not telling us what we can expect tomorrow. Uh, they are a, a lagging indicator, so we continue to have issues with coronavirus and will for some time. Uh, we're really thrilled to have with us today uh Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's the Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Global Health at Emory University, and we're going to talk to him in just a second. He will be joined on today's show by a very distinguished panel of journalists, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the AJC. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. He is here with us, as he always is, on Mondays and Fridays. Jim, thanks for joining us.
1: No, it's great to be here, although it's a little bit like a, a,
0: a downward plunge on a roller coaster, isn't it? It's yeah, it really is. Uh, Patricia Murphy, a syndicated columnist for Roll Call, but also GPB a reporter at Lawmakers, where there's not a whole lot going on right now. But we're glad you're with us again today, Patricia. Thanks for being here. Good morning. And we're also joined today, I'm really thrilled to have on today's show, uh, Virginia Prescott, host of On Second Thought. Virginia, welcome to Political Rewind.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here. I'm thrilled and happy to have some company to talk to, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, I, I believe that's right. Dr. Del Rio, again, you I know how incredibly busy you've been, and uh, it is just very generous of you to spend some time talking with us today. So thank you so much for being here. Have we got
3: – now I hear you. Hear you, you. Yeah, I okay. lost you for a minute. I don't know what happened.
0: Yep, I hear you. I hear you just fine. It's fine. It, we tell our listeners almost every day that uh, we're doing the show by telephone from various locations around the state – and so sometimes the communications get a little bit difficult, but we're going to be in good shape for the show today. Dr. Del Rio, I want to start the questioning, if I may, um, by, you're, uh, you're one of the most prolific tweeters that I follow. And <laughs> I suggest by the way that, that, well, you are. And I suggest by the way that our listeners may want to follow you too. It's It's your at Carlos Del Rio seven. And, uh, Because you are giving us numerous times a week, a day, uh, terrific information about what's happening out there here in Georgia and across the country. Uh, So I think you're well worth following. And and I want to just read a a, a tweet or two from you in recent weeks. On April 1st, which is uh, when Governor Kemp finally declared a statewide shelter-in-place order, You tweeted, I want to thank Governor Kemp for his courageous decision to issue a statewide shelter in place. This is a very important step that will help us to limit the impact of COVID-19 in the Peach State. It will give us time to shore up our hospitals so they are better prepared. Um, And you said several uh, tweets uh, uh, praising the fact that he'd finally done that. I go back a little further to March either the 22nd or 23rd. When you tweeted, we need Governor Kemp to act now. The point of no return for Georgia is rapidly closing to prevent a catastrophe in the healthcare system due to COVID-19. We need for him to shut down Georgia now. So between March 22nd or so and April 1st, we didn't have a statewide uh, shelter in place order. Uh, How has that put us behind the curve? How concerned are you that it only happened this week?
3: Well, you know, I think
0: a couple of things happened in the meantime. Many
3: uh, mayors, many uh, many city uh, uh, councils, many uh, counties went ahead and did their own shelter-in-place decisions. So the reality is, is that it wasn't like Georgia wasn't doing anything, right? It was just happening at different levels from different people that wasn't exactly the governor. And so at the end of the day, I think we were getting what we wanted. You know, I always say, I remind myself of that, you know, that that song of of you know rock and roll uh, saying that sometimes you don't get what you what you want but you get what you need you know so we were getting what we needed <laughs> you know we were not getting what we wanted and but that's okay eventually we got what we needed and i think it was it was fine i mean i think you know you realize that political decision making is complicated political decision making is is difficult and uh you know and and it's uh you have to take many things into consideration and i think the governor was rightly so uh Looking at different things, and I think different counties were doing a different things. I think it happens a little bit also at the national level, right? I mean, I would ideally want to have a national uh, shelter in place, but it is what it is. You know, we're getting, some, we're getting there through a convoluted way through different, you know, governors in a different states.
0: Let me uh, one more quick question about all of this, Um, as I'm sure you know, because you follow the news very closely. Governor Kemp has been under a lot of heat for the last uh, uh, day and a half since he gave his news conference and wish he did order the state to shelter in place. And the remark that he made that's really uh, led to criticism from commentators across the country is this one that we'll listen to right now.
1: You know, I think it's the reason I'm taking this action. Just like I've continued to tell people I'm following the data. I'm following the advice of Dr. Toomey, Uh, her and I both mentioned in our remarks, um, you know, finding out that this virus is now transmitting before people see signs. So the what we've been telling people from directives from the CDC for weeks now that if you start feeling bad, stay home. Uh, Those individuals could have been infecting people before they ever felt bad. Well, we didn't know that. Until the last 24 hours, and as Dr. Toomey uh, told me, she goes, "This is a game changer for us."
0: Um, Dr. Del Rio, on February 28th, you published a piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association (JAMA) online, and in the in that piece, February 28th, you pointed out that uh, transmission could happen among people who have no signs of the virus. Um, Did something change uh, this week at CDC that led the governor to make his decision? Because that's what he's been getting such heavy criticism for.
3: Well, I think several things happened. I think the most important thing that happened is in their weekly publication, CDC published in the MMWR, published that day, an MMWR that talked about a very well-conducted study in Singapore. And they mentioned... Uh, that people could start transmitting up to 48 hours before they develop symptoms. And they use a term that I really like. It's not asymptomatic transmission. Those people are asymptomatic, but they call it pre symptomatic. In other words, you know, it's not like you can remain asymptomatic all your time. It's like you start, trans- you start infecting, you start transmitting about 24 to 48 hours before you develop symptoms. And that's something that we actually know from other viruses. Influenza does something very similar. So I could be in my office feeling fine today, going about and about, and then, you know, and then be infecting other people. And then 24 hours later, I feel terrible and I have the flu. So other respiratory viruses do that. So it was kind of suspected that this virus was doing the same thing because of the dynamics we were seeing. But this very well done study in Singapore published in the MWR, I think kind of, you know, sort of put the put the final nail in the coffin of of of, of this, is what, this is a reality. I think up to that point, we were... Concern about it, there was a, there was strong suspicion about it, but it was, the, the, the firm evidence really came with that MMWR and that study from Singapore. And I think that's what the governor. So was Jim Galloway.
0: To. So Jim Galloway, what I hear Dr. Del Rio saying is that I mean we all know what kind of criticism Governor Kemp has received from a, a number of people around the country, uh, but what Dr. Del Rio is saying is. He f- he did have new information to act on. Uh, maybe he should have acted sooner, but finally there was action taken, Jim.
1: Right, right. It, it was his exp- explanation that was uh, that that was botched uh, more than anything else, I think. On this, uh, Doctor Del Rio, there's. I've also been reading some some reports that that the, this virus can now be. It's, it's We think it, this virus can now be spread by simply by breathing uh is 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 that is, is that legitimate uh that well, it's not just touching touching surfaces or touching skin or droplets
3: well you know i think that it is possible but but i think it's you know again a lot of things are possible but the reality is that i would say 85 90% of transmission probably even more occur from two sources respiratory secretions primarily droplets and, and, you know, inanimate objects that are contaminated. And, and yes, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if you focus on those two things, the other ones, quite frankly, are at this point in time, the aerosolization, for example, is theoretical. It was done with a machine. The, the, the mm-hmm. rest story, again, is theoretical. So a lot, we need to distinguish theory from the reality. And I think, you know, sometimes we tend to get our message confused by, by having all these things that just create anxiety. I think we need to tell people look if we if we can focus on the two things that matter which are respiratory secretions droplet precautions and and uh and inanimate surface contamination we would be in good shape
1: Yeah okay uh and l- let me ask you uh, uh the governor's shelter in place order how does how does that uh, have you have you had a chance to compare it with other states what other states are doing how no, I, I, I have mean not. In, in t- in-
3: I have not, I need to read it. I need to look at it. I mean, I think the, the problem with many of the shelter in places and that I'm not saying is the problem here. I need to read the one here, but the problem with the many of the shelter in place orders that we've seen from other places is, is the exceptions, right? And you need to look very carefully at, at who the exceptions are and what the exceptions are, because it must, in some places, the exceptions have been things like, uh, you know, exceptions have been things like, uh, uh, uh you know religious services well we know religious service is actually a place where a lot of infections happen so i don't think that's a good idea so again we need to look at at the document we need to look at what the what it says and we need to look carefully at the exceptions but i have not done that so i'd rather not comment
0: on it uh by the way uh let me jump in and then patricia i want to give you a chance to jump into the conversation um we are posting on our social media platforms a link to the uh, shelter-in-place order that was published by GPB News so that people can read it for themselves and see what the specifics of it are. Uh, I've gotten any number of notes from you out there who are listening to the show in the last 24 hours saying, what can we and what can't we do? We can talk a little bit about that on the show, but if you really want to see it in detail, just go to the uh, our politics GPB on Twitter, uh, go to our Facebook page and the like. Patricia, you want to jump in?
4: Yeah. um, So there has been a good bit of reporting this morning about the long-term care facilities in Georgia. And I remember I had asked the governor's staff about what the state was proactively doing um, in middle March when we had seen long-term care facilities in Washington State really um, being hit hard by the virus. And now we see this morning dozens of patients in multiple facilities um, and up to 58 facilities with positive patients. Um, and my question for you, Dr. Del Rio, the state now is says they're training, they're starting to train staff in these facilities about how to recognize the, um, the virus and how to contain it. But what else should they be doing? I think there's enormous concern because people's families can't get in to see their relatives. Um, they're not able to see what's going on, um, and I think there's just a, a ton of anxiety about that. What would be your recommendation to the state right now?
3: You know, this is uh, the the nursing home facility issue is one that really scares me because when this virus gets into nursing home facilities, it it the mortality is tremendous. We saw uh, the outbreak in Washington State. It was recently published in New England Journal of Medicine. It's almost a 33 or 34 percent mortality. So one in three people infected will die. So rightly so, we're very concerned. Everybody's very concerned about nursing homes, and we have to keep the virus from entering nursing homes. And how we do that is is not easy, right? So because we have, not only do we have, uh the, the residents there we have family members we have uh we have uh uh you know staff that work there so somebody is, is, is likely to bring it in because of the difference we talked about right the asymptomatic transmission et cetera so we need to do i think we need to do two things we really need to to highlight with our employees the employees that work in those facilities and people that are coming in the importance of the uh the the distancing the 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 preventing of their infection in the community, right? We need to make sure that they are hypervigilant. I'm not, not getting infected in the community. Like we are in healthcare. I mean in healthcare, I tell all my healthcare colleagues, look, you can be infected in the hospital, but you if you do the things you need to do in the hospital, you're more likely to be infected in the in the grocery store or in you know in the community. So you need to not drop your guard when you're in the community. Because here in the hospital we're giving you the supplies and we're giving you the things to decrease your risk of infection. So you you need to make sure that you do the same thing in the community. But the other thing is, you know, many, th- places, are, many places are beginning to do, for example, temperature screening, temperature screening of employees as they come in in healthcare facilities. And I think we need to treat nursing homes a little bit like that. The challenge, of course, is a nursing home resident may go to the hospital and let's say they're sitting in the emergency room and they get infected in the emergency room from, from, from one other patient and then they go back to the nursing home and take the disease in there. So it's really complicated and, quite frankly, I think – we're still trying to, nationally, all of us, and I'm not a, no expert in nursing homes, but everybody is really thinking, struggling with what do we do right.
0: You know, right. Virginia, I th- just what I just heard Dr. Del Rio say is really fascinating. I mean, we know frontline healthcare workers are putting themselves at risk, uh, yeah. treating coronavirus uh, in the hospitals, but for him to say that in fact you might be at more risk going to the supermarket. Uh, because you're not taking the kind of precautions. You don't have the PPEs, whatever. I, to me, Virginia, that really tells us that value of the notion of sheltering in place.
2: Yeah, it is stunning to think of. And I know that a lot of people who are not shopping, some of them are ordering food from restaurants, which we know are struggling across Georgia and ordering in and getting deliveries. And many of them are concerned about, should I be getting deliveries? Now, I have had a little bit of a debate with people on Facebook about this, saying that this is not a foodborne illness. But the point of contact, that delivery person, the materials that you get when you go to the supermarket or Instacart, those are dangerous. Are there precautions we should be taking there?
3: So again, you know, a couple of things. I've learned a lot from talking to people in in other places, not only in China, but my niece lives in Milan. And she's been on lockdown for quite some time. And I've Talk to her almost a couple times a week and hear what she has to say. And what they've done in Milan is, you know, first of all, try to go to the grocery store as little as possible, but you know, sort of get more supplies. But she's got a very small refrigerator, so she has to go, you know, at least a couple times a week. Um, she and her husband, one of them goes, the other one stays behind. Uh, when you go, you obviously, uh, you know, wear. Uh, she wears a mask works uh, hand sanitizer the grocery store doors are open or automatic so you don't have to touch them then when you go in you get a cart. they have wipe there you can immediately wipe your cart, what that you're going to touch and then you go in you you get the stuff that you need you put it in your in your in your bag and then you get to the cashier and you pay using something like your phone or apple pay you're not supposed to be putting your credit card on top you know that's that's the immediate kind of thing they don't want you to be touching a keypad to enter your PIN. Here, for example, I went to the grocery store the other day, and they did have the white piece for the card. But when I got to, the, to to paying, I still had to enter my PIN. So what I did when I did that, I uh, I immediately then get my hand sanitizer and clean my hands before I get into my car. So you have to really continuously be reminding yourself about washing your hands, and very important, not touching your face because the touching the face, the virus doesn't come into your hands. It comes in when you touch your face after you contaminated your hands. As far as deliveries of food go concerned, what they're doing in Italy and what many places here are doing too is you order, you pay over the phone, you don't pay in person, you pay from the Internet or whatever, and then the person comes to your house, delivers, knocks on the door, delivers the stuff, and then it goes away. And then you, you wait a couple minutes, you open the door, you get the stuff, so there's never a contact with the person, right? Then you take your stuff, you put it inside, you take whatever you have, out of the, the food, you put it into a new container or a, pl- or a dish in your house that is clean, and then you take those containers, you put them in a bag, you close it, you throw them away, and then you wash your hands. Again, this hand-washing thing is so important. You have to rem- remind ourselves constantly to be washing our hands. If you touch anything, the next thing you do is you wash your hands, and don't touch your face in the meantime.
2: Well, let me ask you. There are some. Well, personal- let me th- there are- go ahead, Bill.
0: Go ahead, Bridget. No, no, go ahead.
2: I wanted to ask about masks because there's been a little bit of back and forth about whether or not we should be wearing masks when we go out to places like the supermarket. And one of the things, of course, is it keeps you from touching your face directly. What do you think about this idea of wearing masks for everybody, mandatory when they go out?
3: So um, I'm increasingly uh, convinced that that's uh, what we what we uh, should be doing. I will tell you that uh, there are a couple things that I've read. Uh, recently, and I would recommend there's uh, there's two things worth looking at. One uh, is, well, actually, one one really worth looking at. Colleagues at uh, at Yale University just published a, a paper that is that is totally worth looking at. Uh, let me pull it up. It's a it's a it's a study that that says that uh, it's a study called the case for universal cloth masking adoption, and it was published literally yesterday. And what they say here is that using wearing a mask in public will probably decrease the risk of uh, the risk of transmission, the risk of infection by approximately 10%. So uh, wearing uh, the protective effect of wearing a mask will decrease transmission. So it's not huge, but I guess 10% is better than nothing, right? right. So so uh, I, I, I think that. That the, the, and when you look at the different masks, you know, for example, when you think about efficiency and decreasing transmission, the masks we use in healthcare, the N95 masks, have, a, have an efficiency of about 89%, 90% of decreasing uh, transmission uh, and the, and, you know, in real life. A surgical mask has, has about a 33%. A bandana has about 11%. So, you know, so they're all kind of different, right? They're all, a cloth mask has about a 6%. So they all have kind of different. But if you think about wearing masks in public, whether it's a bandana or a clock mask, it's about 10 percent reduction in risk. So it's not huge. But, you know, I'll take 10 percent. At this point in time, I think I'll take anything.
1: Uh, Dr. Del Rio, uh, you mentioned the N95 mask. Uh I mean, the, the, the worldwide, the healthcare industry has got a problem with, with over-centralization of manufacturing, so we've got, we've got some serious uh, shortages building in the pharmaceutical line and, 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 and protective equipment. I mean, what, what's your read on how Georgia hospitals are, are, are prepared in terms of are, 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 they, are they getting enough of the right stuff to do what they need to do over the next three weeks?
3: Well, you know, I mean, it's hard to know uh, how much uh, I, they're, they're working. Hospitals are working very, very hard to have what they need and to and to have everything that they're going to need. I think is not only is it, not just an issue of what you have today, but how you keep your your uh, your supplying your supply chain happening, right? Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is actually really important and something that we have to to not forget about. But I would say that my my feeling is, at least, you know, the hospitals I affiliated with, whether it's Semery Healthcare or, or, or Grady Healthcare, I'm very impressed with the leadership there, how they're anticipating, how they're thinking about it, how they're getting their supplies, how they're really doing everything possible. And you've got to realize that this is, this is unprecedented. This is, I mean, when you hear about, you know, Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital, they, they consumed in one week what they normally consume in five months of PPE. So, you know, yeah, uh, yes, ma- now, now I'm going to go tell ahead. you something that people, that people don't think about. One of the issues, for example, is, believe it or not, increasing testing capacity and testing uh, efficiency, expediting testing, getting tests resolved quickly, actually means saving PPE in the hospital. So let me give you an example. When we, at the beginning of this, when we would get a test and we didn't have testing in-house and we have to send it to the state and the state will take three or five days to give us the result back because they were overwhelmed with testing and took them some time. So during those five days, you're consuming PPE because you think that person is infected. And if, you know, and if they're negative, then you wasted five days' worth of PPE. Now that we can get a test and get the result that same day, you're actually consuming less PPE. You know what I mean? So actually right, right. improving, your, improving yeah. your testing actually decreases your PPE consumption. So all these things are interrelated. They're not independent of each other.
0: Uh, Dr. Del Rio, I should point out that uh, John Halpert, the CEO, of course, at Grady Hospital, spent the hour with us on Political Rewind yesterday. And uh, he uh, said that Grady, as you kind of just referred to them, uh, is well supplied with what they think they're going to need, despite the fact they know they're going to see a crush of patients coming their way. But as you also point out, uh, Phoebe Putney down in Albany has just been overwhelmed. So I guess the answer, in some ways, to Jim's question is: in terms of hospital medical uh, f- facilities of various kinds, it's 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 one one facility is doing fine and others aren't necessarily, right?
3: Well, correct. And, and you know, if all of a sudden there was there was, we would have here in Atlanta a Phoebe Putney kind of event, right? If all of a sudden we would have, you know fifty patients show up in our hospital and any of our hospitals in one day, you know, we would be overwhelmed. And that's why again the connection to the shelter in place. If we can decrease the number of infections, if we can really decrease the number of new transmissions and new infections, this whole flattening of the curve that like, I you know, people keep up talking, what's the impact of of, of of the social distancing. It is what we call the flattening of the curve. In other words, we want to get those admissions, those sick people coming to the hospital over a longer period of time. We don't want them all to come all of a sudden at once because it overwhelms the system, and overwhelming the system includes overwhelming the supply of PPE. Um, uh, yeah,
0: Patricia, do you want to jump in?
4: Uh, yeah, I wanted to check in with you on something that I heard uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci talk about yesterday Um, because the other big piece of what's happening, of course, is the economic piece. And he said he had some public health concerns about uh, a rapidly slowing economy, people losing their health care, and sort of the infrastructure of the health care system getting really deeply challenged and not being able to meet people's other health care needs that have nothing to do with COVID-19 but that certainly haven't gone away. Um, Are there – is there – do public health experts like yourself? Do you anticipate problems outside of COVID when there's this enormous stress on the healthcare system? And and what what do you expect? If so, what concerns
3: would so, you have? So, so my biggest concern, my biggest, I mean, you know, my biggest concern is is are two things. Number one is mental health. Like mm-hmm. right? you know, any any crisis like this, any. Leads to to mental health issues, to anxiety, to isolation, to many things. So we have to think about mental health of of of, patient, of, of the population. We have to also think about violence. I think as you prolong this uh, this social isolation and you produce a rapid, you know, a rapid increase in poverty, there may be more more, more, you know, uh, robberies and assaults, you know, because people need to eat, right? And people mm-hmm. need money. So I think that's the other concern that I, I worry about in increasing violence. And then the third one I still, I worry about people with chronic conditions. I worry about, you know, patients living with HIV, with diabetes, with other diseases that need chronic medical care. And I would tell you that, again, facilities are doing an, an incredible job. I, for example, I'm very familiar with the, you know, our our HIV facility here in Atlanta at Grady. And, and the leadership there has done a tremendous job of ensuring that we can do mail order, pharmacy, we can do distance, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, telemedicine, all sorts of things to keep those people engaged and in care and healthy, because we got to make sure that people with chronic conditions don't, uh, don't, don't, don't decompensate or not. They need to still continue to be healthy, right? We need to continue keeping them in their health and then the other thing that I worry about, and I started to think about it today, is is, is what I've been thinking around it, you know, is we need to keep our, our population active. I worry about sedentarism. You know, when you're told to stay at home, you tend to be sitting down a lot. You tend to be sitting there watching Netflix and eating unhealthy. And, uh, you know, we need to be sure that we get people walking and moving. And, you know, this, again, takes me to a discussion that I've been having and um, and talks that I've been having with the mayor and, and I've been in the paper about is what, what do we do about parks and the bone line. I mean, we could close it, but, but I do worry about not giving people the opportunity to be outside. I do worry about not giving the people the opportunity to exercise. We could be, you know, we could be precipitating heart attacks and, and, and pulmonary embolisms and a whole bunch of other uh, problems from sitting around way too much. So so how do you balance, you know, staying healthy in an environment that is not conducive of staying healthy, which is, quite frankly, the this stay-at-home is, is not conducive to, to, to staying healthy. And finally, I, I worry with this shelter-in-place and stay-at-home that it disproportionately impacts our vulnerable populations. You know, if you're poor, if, if, you, if you live day-to-day, you know, you, first of all, you need a house. Then, you know, for your kids to be educated this way, you need computers, you need laptops, you need Internet. And quite frankly, you know, some people live day-to-day. They cannot stay without this for you know this way for too long. So so is that that difficult balance between between what's right for health and what's right for the economy and what's right for individuals? And it's a really tough situation. I don't I don't know
0: what the answer is going to be.
2: Should people? Doctor Del De Rio, we've got to take making... a break.
0: But before we, Patricia, I'm sorry, I need to jump in because we got to get to a break. Uh, and then I'll be glad to give it back to you in just a minute. But. Uh, before we go to the break, I want to follow up on a couple things to make sure our listeners understand what's practical for them. Number one, you talked about being worried about exercise. People are, can go for walks or runs as long as when they're out uh, on the street, on a path, they're maintaining a proper physical distance. Is that is that basically what you're saying? That's not a problem, right?
3: That's exactly what I'm saying. and And that's, again, we need people to... I mean, we need people to, 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 to do that and to realize that that's what we have to do, because if we don't, then the decision is going to be, well, you know, if we cannot sort of police ourselves or, or be responsible ourselves, then at some point in time, things like the bell line are going to be closed. And I would like not to see that being the case, right, because we need to have the ability for people to exercise, to walk, to, to, to stay active,
0: and then one other quick thing, and a follow-up, and then we'll get to our break. When Virginia asked you about uh, a food, about ordering in, I should not worry. I understand that a delivery person is not going to come into the house. They're going to put the food down and leave. But the food preps, it, there's no risk of transmission by a food worker who's prepped the food that I am bringing into my house. Is that fair to say?
3: I would say that that's fair to say. I mean, I don't think this virus does not like. Uh, it, it, it gets inactivated very quickly at, at warm temperature. At, at the at the uh, at thirty degrees Celsius, this virus it, it dies. It inactivates itself. So I'm not quite. Okay, frankly let me do the. about that. Go ahead.
0: All
3: right, let's concerned. do this. Okay. Let's
0: get a break out of the way. Let's get I'm a good. break out of the way. We will come back, Patricia Murphy. You're going to get the first question because I cut you off a minute ago. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
1: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
0: We're back on Political Rewind. Dr. Carlos Del Rio is joining us. He is, um, I think, one of the most important faces of this virus in terms of giving us information, about what's happening, both on his Twitter feed, uh, the media appearances you've been making, Dr. Del Rio. We're joined also by Jim Galloway, Patricia Murphy, and Virginia Prescott. And we should point out, Virginia, that at 11 o'clock today, Dr. Del Rio talked about this a moment ago. Your uh, show, On Second Thought, will uh, deal with uh, domestic violence and the concerns about an increase in this time when we're all kind of stuck at home, right? Virginia? I think think we lost lost Virginia. Virginia. Um, Patricia, was it you that I interrupted a minute ago? I think we've lost Patricia, too. I think we're having a communications issue right now. Um, uh, Jim Galloway says he can't hear. Dr. Del Rio, you can hear me, right? I can hear you.
2: I can hear you now.
0: Good. Let's keep going. Oh, okay. Virginia, I just said that you at 11 o'clock today are going to be talking about domestic violence. Uh, you're going to be talking about domestic violence on, on Second Thought, which is a concern in this time when we're all stuck in our houses. What I started to say, was it Patricia, was it you started to ask a question or was it Virginia that I cut off? You Hello,
2: cut off, Patricia. Patricia.
4: And Jim, you can move on. Then I go mean, for, uh, for it, uh, Patricia. Girl, you can move
0: on if you need to. No, go ahead. All right, we seem to be having some real communications problems all of a sudden, Doctor Del Rio. I want to, uh, to I want to make sure we get a chance to tell people about is the tool that Emory has developed for helping people identify uh, self diagnose would be I think too strong a word, but but there's a, now a tool, an online tool where people can look at uh, possible sim- at the symptoms to give them some sense of whether they. Uh, may have COVID nineteen. Is that right?
3: Absolutely, and it's a it's a really cool tool developed by my colleagues in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And again, I, I strongly recommend using it just because it really gives gives an opportunity to uh to uh to really you know uh to really see uh to really realize okay do I have this do I don't have this uh, how do I use that information effectively to get to where I need to right. So uh, I, I I have uh, recommended it. And, you know, it's really nice because it's it's available also in other languages, including Spanish and English. But if you enter your information there and you, you go through it, you know, it will ask you things like, you know, what is your age? So, you know, you can then how what enter your age. And then it will ask you about your symptoms. You know, where do you live in your zip code? And then it will ask you about your symptoms. And you can say, you know, I got, let's say I got fever, I got fatigue, you know. So I'm going to enter right now. I'm fatigued. So I'm going to have, I have fatigue and I don't have trouble breathing. So I don't have any of the above and I don't have, uh, I don't have any of those problems. And I said, none of the above. And then the thing is going to say, I say, I'm sorry, you've been <laughs> working too hard. You know,
0: <laughs> You don't have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we already know that about you, Dr. Yeah. Del Rio,
3: <laughs> but if, but if you, but if, you yeah, were what, to change- what is- if but if you were to change that, at some point in time, it's going to tell you, yes, you probably have this. You need to get tested. This is where you go. I really recommend It's a great tool. I really think, I'm, again, this kind of tools are so useful in this day and age using the Internet. And this kind of tools is so much better than other things that we have, right?
2: Bill, can you uh, hear me it now? It seems
0: great. We're going to post. A, yeah, we can hear you. I'll get to you in a sec. We're going to post a link to that uh, diagnostic tool on our social media so people can uh, check it out. Uh, Virginia, do you want to weigh in?
2: I do. I want to follow up on that. I think there's been some lack of clarity about how wide to go in testing. As you said, Dr. Del Rio, testing takes up resources, but we have more, we've ramped up things across the country, and especially here in Georgia in the last week, especially knowing that 25 to 50% of people could be asymptomatic and still have the virus using tools like the Emory tool, Apple has al- also developed one, to see if they're likely for testing, how wide should we go?
3: Well, you know, I think at some point in time, we need to go really, really very wide. And I'm going to tell you what that means. So I look at South Korea as the, the epitome of what white testing has been. And they've been able to use a very different approach than ours because they really scaled up testing in, in, in just remarkable ways, so South Korea has is testing about about doing about eight thousand tests per million inhabitants. Uh, 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 maybe a little bit less than that. Maybe six thousand per million inhabitants. We are currently in the U.S. doing oh somewhere around uh, maybe a thousand per million inhabitants. So in order to catch up with South Korea we would need to do about a million tests a week for the next two months. So, can we do that? I think we should. We should try for that. But it's we have so much catching up to do that 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 is it's 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 going to be challenging. It's going to be it's going to require a major effort. And I'm not saying we can't do it, but it's not going to be easy. But if we were able to scale up testing and that's again one of the things when we think about the shelter in place when we think about the, the you know the president saying we're going to stay I'm going to stay, you know, stay at home for the next until until April 30th. If we can use this month to really scale up testing to get to where South Korea is, about six or seven thousand tests per million population, then we would be in a very different place. Because because then a key a key strategy to get out of when people ask me how do we get out of where we are right now, how do we end up social distancing, how do we end up how do we reopen the economy? It's gonna be critical to have data. And that data is gonna come from testing. So if we're not able to scale up testing to a level we need to, we're gonna be in this, in this sort of a, you know, in this stuck in this in this in this place for a lot longer. So the sooner we scale up testing, the sooner we can say, here are the pockets of disease, this is where we need to target interventions, then you can very quickly start opening the country and start opening the economy. But we need data for that, and that data is gonna come from testing.
1: Dr Del Rio yep. um yeah Dr Del Rio there's uh, I, I don't want to uh, underestimate the, the 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 danger that this pose, the virus poses for for older residents of Georgia but there's some there there's some there's some numbers out there that are kind of indicating that that the, the that the fatalities in 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 the south are trending younger uh, do you think that's going to hold up and if if it does what's it telling us
3: well, I think it's doing it's doing two things. Number one, even though the mortality is higher in older people, it doesn't mean that you cannot die when you're young. And I remind that to young people, and they say, "Oh, this is no big deal in young people." Well, it is. You can be, you can die if you're young with this disease. So don't underestimate the power it has. Don't underestimate the, the severity of the disease. But why in the south? we're seeing higher mortality that we expect that are trending in lower age population. I think it's a good question. And at this point in time, I think there's a lot of speculation, but you know, one of the things that I think about is, well, you know, here in the South we have higher incidence of diabetes, right? Of hypertension, of chronic disease. So it may be simply a reflection of who we are and where we happen to be and what diseases, what underlying diseases do we have? So, um, uh, I think that uh, I would look at that as one of the. But again, it needs we need we need data. We need we need studies. We need science to understand that. It's not going to happen out of the uh, out of you know if, without science. We're not going to be able to make it.
0: Uh, Patricia, I think we're back uh, in touch with you, so I wanted to give you a chance to jump into the conversation again.
4: Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, on the subject of testing, Dr. Del Rio, what's your, under te- what's your understanding of where we are, how close are we to getting that kind of widespread testing? I know there's some new tests that may be coming online shortly. How long does it take to manufacture those? How long do you think it would take to get them out to people who need them? And how far what, away what are you do you think about, we'll from I mean, that?
3: Test? About the testing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You, you know, I think that uh, – I think that testing a lot of companies. I mean, the number of tests available is coming out in an incredible, incredible uh, way. And I think that we will get. Uh, I mean, companies are doing a much better job. The question is, is uh, is not where we are in testing. Uh, the question is, is not just the testing. It's also the uh, the supplies, right? It's also do we have the necessary. Uh, supplies to the testing that we need to do. That, to me, is actually uh, one of the biggest issues that we have. How do we, how do we have the necessary supplies so we can then, uh, so we can then uh, do the testing? So there's an issue of, of sort of supply management beyond the, the testing. People talk about the kits, and it's not just the kits. And I'll give you an example. Uh, for example. Let's let's suppose I have a lab that is doing one of the tests, the Abbott test. Well, the Abbott test, the machine that runs that test, can run 90, 90 tests per eight hours because that's, you know, you put 90 specimens in there, and it takes eight hours to run the test. Well, that means that over a 24-hour period, you can only run 270 tests, assuming you work the machine nonstop, 24-7, Right so you have a limitation by the by the number of equipment you have so you got to buy new machines in order to do scale, scaling up and and you have to get those machines and you have to install them you have to 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 calibrate them you have to test them then you need the personnel to run those machines so and then you need the reagents so and then you know you need for example i don't know if you've heard about the swabs that you stick up people's nose to get the samples well there's a, there's a there's a shortage of, of swabs right now so it's not just getting the, the kit test. It's really the whole supply management of doing a test. And I think that's what we need. The logistics of scaling up testing is not simply just sending a bunch of test kits and saying, okay, guys, do the testing. And so, therefore, we, start, we need to start looking at other alternatives for testing. And I know some people are looking at, you know, can we do saliva testing? Can we do, you know, point-of-care testing? What are the kinds of testing? What can we do? And there's a lot of very smart people doing that, a lot of companies doing that, and the FDA yeah. has said, look, we will approve things quickly. But again, are we going to be able to do what we need to do in a month? See, that's the challenge. The challenge is not what we are doing right now, but can we do what we need to do over the next uh, month? And it's, it's imperative that we do what we need to do over the next month. I mean, it's truly imperative. If we don't scale up testing, we're not going to be able to get out of this mess that we're on. And that's why I think it's, it's – let, uh,
0: let me interrupt. Yeah. Go ahead. Finish your thought.
3: No no what i'm saying is it's 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 not a it's a it's a priority that we do that we we cannot uh we cannot not do it basically
0: um let me do this uh we got to get our final break of the show in we've got just a few minutes left when we come back with dr carlo uh... carlos del rio and uh... will get to a couple of questions that people posed on twitter for us to ask you doctor del rio but right now let's take our final break of the show Dr. Del Rio, as we've been uh, talking uh, on the show today, I've been kind of looking at the questions that our Twitter followers posed to us, at Politics G P B, and we've answered uh, quite a few of them, but, but there are a couple that I think are important for us to get to, and, and one of them that, of course, a lot of people are concerned about is whether or not we have evidence that COVID-19 looks as though it's going to do what the 1918 pandemic did which means will it mutate and come back in the fall stronger than ever we don't know unequivocally what might happen but what are the indicators that we might face this again in the fall in an even more potent form
3: well i think there's two things there i think you know at this point in time it's all speculation will it come back will it not come back i think that it may come back i think it's possible and i think we need to again be prepared for for that Having said that, uh, it's not an issue of just a mutation, and people worry about I hear so much about mutation it's not it's not just not an issue of a mutation it's an issue of a simply you know viruses tend to tend to uh, tend to persist viruses tend to persist and they can do this the uh, but the the important thing is that I think if it comes back and when it comes back, we may be uh, we may be we should be better prepared than now, and I think that's different. The difference between uh, well, while I, while I I appreciate the comparison to 1918. I will also say that we are not in 1918. We have better science. We have better healthcare. We have better many things. And to start with, we have better. You know, think about where we are in 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 the uh, where where we are in the uh, in in where we've been. I mean, this virus was described, this disease was described December 31st. A week later, they had isolated the virus. They put the sequences out there. Very quickly, the tests were developed. We now have, Oh, this morning I looked at, we have over 200 and something clinical trials happening right now around this virus. We are already testing a vaccine. So, So I think because of science, because of research, when this comes back, we will be in a much better place. So I don't worry about the future, when it comes back, I worry about getting over, over this hump right now. That is the tough part. The tough part is right now when, as I said, we need to scale up testing. We need to get our hospitals ready. We're we're facing an unprecedented challenge right now. So rather than worry about the future, I, I worry about the present.
0: One other quick thing from our, our listeners, and then I'll uh, throw it back to uh, other people on the panel today. Um the, uh, as you well know, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington uh, has done a lot of modeling for the country and for individual states. They suggest, as I'm sure you know, that by June 1st, by June 1st, we should really be at the bottom of the curve. They say pretty much what you've said, that April 23rd, April 24th is when we really hit the height of the problems here do you – by the beginning of June, uh, should we expect that we can get back to life as normal? There are a number of people who have wanted to ask that of you.
3: Again, again, getting to normal, and I would strongly recommend people look at uh, – uh, Scott Gottlieb, who was the FDA director, uh, published uh, what I think is a fantastic, fantastic piece on on how do we get out of this mess, right? What do we need to do to get out of this mess? And And I think what he – he, does, he did there really is, is did a really good job of saying, you know, uh, what do we need to do? What is the roadmap for reopening? And this was published March 28th, so it's very, very recent, and it's worth looking at. And what he talks about is, is sort of the different scenarios and the different stages and the different things that need to happen. I think getting back to normal is going to be, immediately is going to be very hard. But I do think that that if we do the right things, we will be able to do that. As I said, it's critical that we – there are three things that are critical. We have to scale up testing so we can implement case-based interventions. What South Korea and other places have done is they can test people rapidly. They can get the result right away. They can isolate that individual. They can identify their contacts, and they can stop transmission. We haven't been able to do that effectively in this country. We have not – I mean, how many examples are there of somebody going in and then being rejected from testing and then going back home. And then by the final time, time you make the diagnosis, how many people have been infected in the meantime? So we have to do a, a rapid intervention that takes no time between somebody having symptoms and getting tested and, and stopping the transmission change. Number two, we really need to take care of, of our vulnerable populations very, very effectively. So older individuals, people with high risk of comorbidities, we're gonna to have to take special precautions. And then we need to, I think it's going to help identify those that are immune, right? Because at some point in time, we, we, we assume this this, this this virus causes immunity. So if you've been infected and you already have antibodies because we now have a blood test that we can tell this person is immune, then we, we may get to a point that we say, well, like in New York City, let's say 40% of the population is immune. Well, guess what? They're going to be in much better shape than a place that only 10% of the population is immune, Right because there's going to be what we call herd immunity. There's going to be enough immunity in the population that transmission is going to stop. So I think we need all those. Again, I go back to science and data. If we don't have the data, we, we can't make decisions. And that's going to be the challenge.
0: Jim Galloway, I'm really running out of time rapidly. And I apologize that we're not going to get to uh, questions from Patricia and Virginia. But I want to give you one last chance. We got about a minute or so if you've got a quick question
1: yeah dr del rio i'm just it, it's a it's a pretty simple question how does an epidemiologist shelter in place
3: how um, do you do your how do you do your job well you know when, remember, remember remember i'm an epidemiologist but i'm also a clinician i'm also work my job is in a hospital so i come to work every day and and i use the precautions that you need to, to use right i i i you know have my mask my when i go into the wards i have my mask and i wash my hands and I have my Purell. And I, 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 I'm very, very careful about what I do and I keep social distance, et cetera, et cetera. So again, n- nothing magical is just, again, I have a lot of respect for this virus and I have a lot of respect for infectious diseases because of my training. And, and therefore I, I take this thing seriously. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I will, if we're standing in the grocery store and I'm close to you, I'm going to either walk behind or you get close to me. I'm going to either step away, but I'm going to make sure I have that six foot distance that we need to have. So over and right, over, just Dr. Del Rio, just I, I've got to
0: I got to jump. I'm sorry. I got to jump in because we are about 20 seconds from having to finish the show. Only enough time for me to say you are great for spending so much time answering our questions today. Thank all of you for being with us for another week of Political Rewind. Please stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you again on Monday.
3: Uh, Looking forward to seeing you again.